The first reading is from Luke 11:14 to 22. Jesus and Beelzebul. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Uh, The second reading is from Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Is it not to angels that he was subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking? But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that not a subject to them, that was not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and the the ones who are made, those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says... I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. And the children, the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who, are, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted." This is the word of the Lord. Such a wonderful text and um, profound in many ways, difficult, uh, which means you'll have to do some work today, but treasure is rarely found at the mouth of a cave. And quite frankly, every verse there and every word is worth meditation. And so I urge you to go home and consider every line and every word and and uh, consider what I'm about to give to you today as an introduction to your own meditation on these 
words. Today we ask the question, what does it mean to be a human being? And the answer might surprise you and give you energy to keep the faith despite a testing time. Just to manage your expectations, I've got a, a, about an eight-minute introduction uh, because I want to set up uh, a concept that I hope the passage itself will answer. So let's pray. Father, you've given us your word. May we pay, pay the most careful attention. You've given us your son. May we listen to him in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So about 25 years ago, I heard a sermon on the Christian doctrine of humanity, that is, teaching on what it means to be a human being in God's world from God's perspective. People tend to think what it means to be human is straightforward and obvious, but it isn't, even if it feels obvious to many of us. And there are huge consequences for getting it wrong. For example, if you were living in Rwanda in the 1990s during the Rwandan massacre, one million dead, the genocide, one group named the Tutsi in Yenzi, in Yenzi, cockroaches. There's a doctrine of humanity. The sermon was a great sermon 25 years ago, and it began with Psalm 8, where King David expresses wonder to God at being human. He just, I can't understand it. He says, when I consider your heavens, right, the sky, the night sky, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, right, when I look up at the night sky, I ask myself the obvious question, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings, right, the son, of, the son of man, that you care for them. What is then a man? Which is a contentious question today. What is mankind that God would care about him? Why would God, who made the whole universe, mind us? I love the sermon and the answer that was given and still remember it to this day. But even back then, I wondered what its usefulness might be. It was important, I could tell that, but not much practical use to me now. But over the last 25 years, some things have changed. The concept of what it means to be human has come right to the heart of a struggle in our society. The question of human identity is now live. 25 years ago, we barely used that word. I mean, I remember when I was at school, someone said, you know, what is your identity? And I'm like, I am a boring adolescent boy. You know, I didn't even know how to answer the question. Now the word identity is just alive. I believe we used to have a shared view, at least broadly in the West, but we do so no longer. The question of what it means to be human is at the heart of all the tricky debates I'm not going to pretend like these debates are easy or the solutions simple. I'm not going to tell you what to vote or how to think. But the question of the doctrine of humanity is at the heart of the questions about euthanasia, racism, marriage, family, sexuality, issues and identity, welfare, abortion, even climate action. 
even what we saw last week in world pride, was in a sense a doctrine of humanity, or at least coming from a doctrine, a secular doctrine of humanity. Phrases like love is love and you do you, everything everyone else has taken. Phrases like that are very simple, they're catchy, and they come from a kind of doctrine of humanity, by which I mean an accepted wisdom about what it means to be a human being. And if you find yourself rolling your eyes at others online, it often means that you've got a different answer to the question, what is a human being? What does it mean to be human? 25 years later, personal choice is king for a brave new world. Journalist Kelly Sackville yesterday in the Sydney Morning Herald, I don't know if you saw it, she said that we have a right to be happy and therefore we ought to leave marriages certain marriages. Jane Caro on Dying with Dignity, on their endorsement page, she sums up one doctrinal position or sort of perceived wisdom about what it means to be human. She wrote, she wrote, my body, my life, my death, my suffering, my choice. Personal choice has been a virtue for 200 years, you could argue since at least Rousseau, but maybe longer. Maybe it's embedded into I don't know. But in the last 25 years, something new has happened. Everyone now needs to endorse everyone's personal choice. Unless harm can be shown, then we'll oppose it. But I believe even do no harm is not a given, really. Not everyone now or throughout history believed in do no harm, right? In Yenzi. I mean, if you were living in Rwanda, would you have joined it? I suspect you would have. Maybe, I don't know. We'd like to think we wouldn't. I think you need a particular doctrine of humanity to decide to do no harm. There's general agreement in the West that each human being is important, no doubt. You'll see that in, I think you'll see that in hospitals especially. But this is not shared by many cultures now and throughout history. But there's general agreement, while at the same time there's an undermining of one of the main reasons we believe that human being, all human beings are important and worthy of respect, namely that each of us are made in God's image, a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than God, another translation of Psalm 8 says. But with the removal of God, are we undermining one of the main reasons in the West why we believe that each person needs to be treated with respect. Everyone made in God's image means that each person is important, of value, of intrinsic value before we've earned it, and even after we've burnt it. I think there are some people, politicians in particular, where you think, they've burned my respect, so I don't have to treat them as a person made in God's image. You see that with the way Australians treat politicians all the time. But there's this power in this doctrine of being made in the image of God. But the debate then diverges from, from where do we derive our value and how do we determine what it means to be human. And at its heart, there's a simple question. Is our humanness derived from outside of ourselves, for example, from God, or derived from inside of ourselves, from our suke, from our our desires, our hopes. 
Do we conform to another, to God, or to ourselves? Is there a God who gives me value and therefore requires things of me, or do I follow my own dreams, Disney, and define myself in terms of my personal hopes and my desires? Hebrews 2, 5 to 18 contains a profound doctrine of humanity, and it centers not on me, not on my desires, not on my self-control, self, the control of self, but rather it centers on Jesus Christ, who he is, and what God has done for humanity through this human and it helps this tired Christian who's tired of swimming against the tide, anyone who may be close to giving up their hope, a reason to keep going. Recap. We're in week two in a series in the book of Hebrews, which we're calling guardrails for our hope. Guardrails are good. They stop you from falling off. Now stay with me. The context of the book is suffering for being Christian. The purpose of the book is to give tired Christians a word to keep going. The title of the book is Pros Hebraea, to the, towards the Hebrews. The, all, the form of the book is a sermon, a word of encouragement. The author of the book is Only God Knows. We don't know. The focus of the book is Jesus Christ. He is better than the angels who gave us Torah. He's higher. And so the warning of the book is you will not escape judgment if you ignore so great a salvation, so do not throw away your confidence. Four questions, and these are if you're following the outline. One, what is it to be human, from verses 5 to 8? What is it to be this human, Jesus, verse 9? What do we gain by his shared humanity? A brief look at 10 to 17. And then how would it help us in verse 18? Firstly, what is it to be human? Well, according to Psalm 8, it's to be a little lower than the heavenly beings, Elohim. Perhaps even a little lower than God himself. You say, there's God, you go, human beings are down here. Incorrect. There's God, here's human beings. This is big and it's important. You're not cockroaches. You're not pests. Or, thank you, Matrix, Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Incorrect. A little lower than Elohim. That's who you are. By the way, I've heard a thousand youth talks where it's like, God is so big and you're so small and little and disgusting and worm-like and all the kids go, I know, I know, I know. Like making a kid feel bad about themselves, like shooting fish in a barrel. Hate them. Hate them all. Those sorts of talks. God, you. Inyenzi. You can see how calling someone Inyenzi allows you to take their life. A little other than God, every human being must be respected, even the ones you don't like. But this is true not because of self-determining it, but rather because God decreed it. The writer makes the point in verse 5, Drawing on the line of he's better than the angels from chapter 1, he says in verse 5, Now follow with me. It is not to angels that he's objected to the world to come, the world about which we are speaking, the hope about which we are speaking. It's to humans, not angels. Humans will inherit the earth. 
This is the ultimate hope that the writer has been talking about, the world to come, life everlasting. It's for our sake, for humanity, that the world to come is for, not angels. He makes the point using the Greek translation of Psalm 8, in verse 6, he says, but there is a place, Psalms, where someone, David, has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of a man, a human being, that you care for him, you made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honor, and you put everything under humanity's feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. God's plan for humanity was all things under his feet, the birds of the air, fish of the sea, etc. Psalm 8, I love this by the way, here we are in 2023, reading a text from about 60 AD, who quotes a psalm from 1000 BC, who quotes Genesis chapter 1, to humanity, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. The purpose of human being is to rule and tend and steward creation together and under God. And you'll need a revelation for that. I'll tell you why, because if you stand outside at night, not here in the city, somewhere else, and you consider outside, looking up, the vastness of the universe, the mind-bogglingly huge universe, far bigger than David, who wrote Psalm 8, could ever have known. Well, the psalmist, of course, God's, he calls God's um, handiwork, you know, um, the stars and the moon, which God just goes, I'll put you here and move you there and take you here. You think a black hole, right, is huge. God goes, let me make a black hole. Whew. Create, you know. A black hole is like a top to God. And the psalmist then says to the question, if, if the universe is this big and God is bigger, like profoundly bigger, then what the Sam Hill am I? Am I but dust? Because that would be the implication. I, I, you know, when I look up, I define insignificance. I define it. There's a great moment in um, Hitchhiker's, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Did you read that? In Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is fun, comedic, sort of sci-fi to the future, written by Douglas Adams, uh, there's a professor who's got his mind in the clouds, and his wife keeps saying to him, get things into perspective, get things into perspective. You should get things into perspective. And so he creates a device to show her what get things into perspective means. It's called the total perspective vortex. And you walk inside, it's connected to a cup of tea and some fairy bread. You've got to read the book. You walk inside the total perspective vortex, and the machine gives you a glimpse of you in relation to the entire universe. And your brain lobotomizes because you can't believe how insignificant you are. The total perspective vortex. David stands outside and says, surely I'm insignificant. Surely I am but dust. But somehow, despite all the smallness, true revelation, despite all the sin, despite all the muck and injustice, all the self-importance, all the self-determination, David says, somehow Genesis 1 remains true. I am important. You are important, not in Yenti. A little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, God himself. And together we rule and steward the earth. Unless you think that this means rape and pillage the earth, you have misunderstood God, you have misunderstood power as God has defined it. 
you've probably learned more from Marxism about power than the Scriptures, because God, out of power, serves. We are to use our power to tend the earth, not pollute it or destroy it. There is nothing in all creation that is not subject to humanity, but, 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 8b, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. The world eats us up as we eat the world up. Something's wrong. The world is not the way it's supposed to be, harmonious, ordered, beautiful, just, caring, tending the earth like a garden under God. This is not the way the world is now. So secondly, what does it mean to be this human, verse 9? The writer names Jesus for the first time in his sermon in verse 9, all the way so far. He's been the Son. At present, the world is not subject to humanity. We've made a mess of it. But the beginning of such a hope, the glimmer of a restoration of the way things should be has begun in the life of one human being, verse 9, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour, which is what is meant for humanity, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, which is the thing we remember in a few moments' time when we take bread and wine. Notice the play on words. Humanity is a little lower than the angels, but this one was made lower for a little while. Jesus, who is the eternal son, present before creation, and the inheritor of it, was made, a little, made lower than the angels for a little while. In incarnation, in his life, in his death, this is the gospel. And it's most understood by understanding the singular in the psalm. I read this to you a moment ago. What is man? Mindful of him? I don't understand. The son of man that you care for him. But the truth is, you made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. But in the original language, you made him mankind. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. You see what he did there? What is true of humanity is ultimately true of Jesus Christ, humanity's representative, the ultimate human being, Jesus used the term son of man to refer to himself over and over in the Gospels. This is our God who took on flesh, who shared our humanity, verse 14, fully human in every way, verse 17, who showed us then what it means to be human, what it means to have victory by humility and humility in humanity, and yet to be crowned with glory and honor, verse 9, precisely because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What does it mean to be human? It means to be like Jesus Christ. And without the declaration of God that we are important, we'll have to decide it for ourselves that we are important. Without a dignity that is derived divinely, we'll have to secure such a dignity for ourselves which I believe leads to what's happened in the last 25 years, namely the rise and the triumph of the modern self. I am king. My desires are king. Which is, of course, a cruel twist on the rise and triumph of Jesus Christ where we find our humanity. So third, what do we then gain by his Christ-shared humanity? Well, I'll be brief, but we get a God who is one of us. This is such good news. The meek one with whom we will inherit the earth the meek one. It's called shared humanity. We gain three things. We gain a brother, a champion, 
and a mediator. We gain a brother, verses 10 through 13, qualified through suffering. Jesus had to be human. He had to suffer. He had to be one of us in order to redeem our humanity, verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. We'll sing that in a moment's time. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. The word perfect there doesn't carry with it the idea that he was not perfect, but rather that he was qualified to be our saviour by suffering. Our salvation comes through suffering. The recipients of the sermon to the Hebrews knew it was true. Arrested, put in prison, confiscation of property, not yet given up their lives. They resisted, but not to the point of shedding their own blood. But Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation, qualified by suffering, walked the same path. They arrested him, they confiscated his property, and they snuffed out his life. But verse 11, both the one who makes people holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, Justin Moffat, Renea Farley, Roman Partridge, they're of the same family, got a brother. So then Jesus is not ashamed to call them sister, brother. And verses 10 through 12, he quotes the Old Testament to make the point. We've got a brother. We've also got a champion breaking the power of Satan, fear, and death in verses 14 through 16. These are profound passages about how Jesus shared our flesh and blood and therefore did away with fear of death, which is the devil's tool to control. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, right, blood cursing through these, coursing through these veins, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, let's name him the devil, and therefore as a champion free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You're afraid of death? Maybe now, maybe no, maybe not yet. Maybe of people you know and love. Jesus shared our flesh and blood. How else do you die? Only a human being can bleed. Right, that line, if it bleeds, we can kill it. That was true of those who opposed Jesus. The fear of death is a very human, strong human experience, and it comes with it, a slavery, a fear, an exile in many ways, with Satan's accusing words. You are guilty and you deserve this. But Jesus shared our flesh and blood that he might be our champion over the devil and therefore to free us, all those who are kept a slave of fear. By tasting death for everyone, he has destroyed Satan's stronghold. If I can be cheeky, his one gift is to make you afraid, and it's been robbed of him. I believe that the writer is alluding to Jesus' words in Luke 11 that was read to us. Luke, or Jesus, was quoting Isaiah 49, that there's a strong man who has a kingdom, Beelzebul, Satan, death itself, but that strong man must be tied up and defeated by someone stronger. You must be stronger than the strong man. 
your brother Jesus is not just the strong one, but the stronger one. I believe the strongest one. He's a champion. And lastly, you get a mediator, fully human in every way. We have a great high priest, a great high priest. This is picked up in chapter 10 in other places. Look at verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Roger's going to lead the service in a moment's time, but I promise you he is not the mediator between you and God. That fair, Roger? Good man. Correct. Jesus Christ is. And yet he was fully human in every way, like the priests of the Old Testament. They had to be one of us to make atonement for sins. Jesus was made like us in every way, which does not mean he sinned. No, sinning is not what it means to be human. You hear this all the time. I'm just a human, I'm not perfect. Actually, sinning is not what it means to be human. Sinning is subhuman. That's what makes it so destructive and tragic. What it means to be human is to walk with God, to love him. No, Jesus made like us in every way, fully human in every way. Speaking of his frailty, his hunger, his tears, his temptation, his testing, his struggle, his suffering. He bled and died that he might make atonement for the sins of the people so I can get up tomorrow morning forgiven and confident. There is no other way. So lastly, how would this then help us? And the answer is, verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tested or tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. Jesus is able to help you, I promise. Risen from the dead, present with you now. The temptation in this life is to give in, to cave, too tired to keep fighting, swimming upstream is no fun. He knows what you're going through. He's been there before. So, three conclusions. One, tell yourself the gospel every day in your suffering, in your fear, in your tiredness, in your anxiety. Jesus is your brother behind you. He suffered on the cross. He's your stronger brother with you, a mediator right now interceding with God. He is your strongest brother ahead of you. The world to come is his. The meek one is inheriting the earth and bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Tell yourself the gospel. Second, find your true self in Christ. This means becoming a Christian, a follower of Christ. And when you find your true self in him, you lose your life, you gain it. You try to control your life, you lose it. That's what Jesus said. If you do, he will awaken in you God's purpose for you. He'll challenge you to rule over the earth with humility, to bring order out of chaos in your work as you love and serve others and treat every human being with dignity, even the ones you don't like. And if you believe both of these to be true and beautiful, then it will give you strength to, thirdly, not buy the new, brave, secular version of humanity. You do you. Where if you feel it, if you want it, you get to have it. 
Control is the key. Then don't buy it. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Even if the actualization of self is good works, because it's still from you, not derived from your creator or your savior. And don't buy it when people say to you it's not a doctrine. It is, and increasingly you are a heretic if you don't subscribe. You may, in the future, suffer, be put in prison, or experience the confiscation of your property. Not yet, but maybe later. You do you is a great soundbite. Here is a better truth, guardrails for your hope. A truth that goes deeper into your sin and your frailty than you imagine, but higher for your hope and in grace than you dared dream. And it's in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, we're of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call you a sister or a brother. Let's pray. Father, there's treasure here. May we enjoy the beauty and power of this news that Jesus Christ is one of us, shared humanity, and therefore our champion, our brother, our mediator, able to take us to a brand new place, which is not just about self or personal control, but about yielding and finding ourselves secure in him. Bless us, Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.